Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. If you are currently wanting to get personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is for you to book in a complimentary consultation. In this 15-minute consultation, we will discuss your current health goals, what you can expect from consultations, and we cover any questions that you may have. If you're happy to go ahead, we book in a time for your initial consultation, but equally, if you need a little time to think about it, that is perfectly okay too. To book in a complimentary consultation, simply head over to selendouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book section. Alternatively, you will also find the booking link in the show notes on this episode. We hope to meet you very soon. Hello and welcome back to another episode. In this particular episode, I am actually interviewed as a guest on Health, Happiness and Humankind, which is Steph Lowe's podcast. And we're talking all about Gilbert syndrome. So before you tune out, Gilbert syndrome is much more common than we think. And it has quite big impacts on our digestive and gut health, our menstrual cycle, our mental health, and interestingly, our tolerance to alcohol as well. So before you tune out, keep listening because it may just be relevant to you. And in this episode, we are talking about its prevalence, the diagnosis, and the issues with the standard medical definition. So what you'll come to see is that it is very much dismissed and that there isn't really a treatment at the moment as it's often described as benign. So we talk about that and also the conventional pathology reference ranges. And, you know, if you've got some blood tests, you might like to go back and have a look at yours and see if possibly this is an issue that is explaining or affecting some of your symptoms. Um, we explore the relevance in terms of the symptoms that I discussed, so menstrual cycle changes, problems with estrogen clearance, mental health, alcohol, and we also take a deep dive into treatment and some different strategies that we use in clinic. Obviously, we do use things in a lot more depth than what we discuss in this episode, but it's a nice um, overview of some of the suggestions and things that we like to use. So I hope that it's very helpful. Uh, and without further ado, let's jump in to the episode. Hi, Selene, and welcome to the show. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me. This is a topic I'm really interested in diving into with you. So let's set the scene as to, you know, why you and I wanted to share this with our listeners today. Yes. So today we're talking about something called Gilbert syndrome, which might sound a bit random and not relevant to you, but it's actually, I think, a lot more common than we think. So it is estimated to affect somewhere between 5 to 10% of the population. But as we'll talk about, I think it's actually much probably higher than that. I think it's actually underreported. Um, and the sort of symptom picture that we would be looking at um, 
is quite common and and Gilbert's as we go into can affect um, a few different key things including mental health definitely some sort of non-specific um, uh, digestive issues and so we would see a lot of people maybe being labeled with something like your general IBS uh, and it does also affect our hormonal clearance specifically really estrogen so again we're looking at broad non-specific things maybe it's something that's worsening something like an endometriosis picture if it's going on at the same time as that or it's worsening PMS or it's really called seeing that like heavy bleeding heavy menstrual bleeding um you know anxiety towards the end of the cycle blood clots all that kind of thing so before you tune out thinking that it's not something that is relevant to you, just pause because I think it actually might be. Yeah, especially when you unpack the symptom picture and and, and you and I meet people in clinic who might have a cluster of symptoms um, and no one's been able to unpack the root cause and they're the same people who've been told their, their levels are quote-unquote normal. So we'll, we'll unpack, you know, functional reference ranges as well as what your pathology report might tell you is normal as well today. So stay tuned for that. But before we go any further, I just want to set the scene with some definitions so we're clear on what Gilbert syndrome is. And then we'll talk more about prevalence. And also um, I want to talk about how the the reference ranges have actually been calculated because I think that's really interesting as to why a lot of people are told their levels are normal and perhaps they need further investigation. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. So let's start with the definition. So I'll go slowly so that I don't muddle-fuddle my words, but um, the standard sort of medical definition is benign hyperbilirubinemia, nailed it, um, which basically (laughs) just means (laughs) that um, this person has high bilirubin, but benign being that, you know, it's not really an issue is essentially what that's saying. Like your bilirubin's high, but it's not going to affect you negatively is essentially really what that's saying, that it's not going to, you know, cause you a disease or anything like that. But what we're really looking at is um, impairments in the glucuronidation pathway, which is part of your phase two liver detoxification. Um, specifically, the gene that um, or the enzyme um, that's looked at is the UGT1A1, um, but there are other ones. And I think Potentially, if someone just has one variation versus multiple variations, that's going to affect the degree to which this glucuronidation pathway can be impaired. So it, as far as the research goes, shows anywhere from around 10 to 65% downregulation in function, which is massive. Yeah. And I think I try and think about a lot of things in like broad concepts, and I think it helps me to be able to explain that to clients better. But from a really logical point of view, if we kind of just zoom out and think that these people with Gilberts could have up to a 65% down regulation in a major part of their detoxification pathway, does it really make sense that it would be benign? Mm. I think like, that's quite logical, except how interesting is it when you jump into Google and every single definition or explanation just writes it off as, mm-hmm. you know, look elsewhere, move on, which we've met many clients who have had that elevated bilirubin on a blood test for their entire pathology history and it's either never been discussed because the doctor's been taught it's benign so move on or the patient says something like oh yeah I've just got Gilbert's but you know there's nothing I can do about it and it doesn't impact me kind of classic explanation but you know confirmed by Dr Google of course which is a real 
real tragedy because there's so much more to it as we're unpacking. Yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely there's more research I think needed. I think we've got limitations in what is available and, of course, if we're labelling it as benign, it's going to be difficult for there to be more research, I think, done mm. in this area at this stage. So, yeah, stay the other stat, Yeah, the <laughs> other stat that I just wanted to kind of throw in, which I think is quite interesting, if we if we unpack just what that phase two or glucuronidase pathways in charge of. So it's eliminating our endogenous toxins, so that's self-produce, but potentially up to 70% of our exogenous toxins. So that's what comes from the outside, our environmental exposure. So 70% is huge, right? So again, like if we've got a down regulation in this pathway from a small to say a um, I don't want to use the word severe, but um, significant degree, then, yeah, we're not going to be eliminating toxins appropriately. And that's really interesting as to how that flows on to our, our four primary symptom presentations mm-hmm. with the mental health issues, the estrogen issues, the gut issues, and then the reduced alcohol tolerance, which we'll talk about. But it makes a lot of sense that it could be quite significant. But do you want to talk about... Um, classical reference range and and maybe how that's been Mm. um, determined and then what we look at from a functional perspective next? Yeah, so I think the main thing that we're looking at really is consistently high bilirubin um, and consistently elevated. And I guess the definition of elevated is where things get a little bit grey because we've talked about so many times on the show there's obviously differences as to what we would look at as optimal versus what falls into the category of quote-unquote normal and there Mm. obviously being a bit of a gap there. Um, What we want to really be looking, I think, at um, in terms of the actual bilirubin, we've got what's called total bilirubin and we've got conjugated bilirubin. Mm -hmm. When someone has consistently elevated total bilirubin and they're not able to conjugate it, so we've got like a normal or a low conjugated, but conversely, like quite a high amount of um, total bilirubin. This is indicating that someone has an issue in that glucuronidation pathway, that they're not able to detoxify it properly. And this conjugation is actually making that bilirubin a little bit more water soluble so that it can be cleared through the digestive tract and through the stools. And so what we're looking at is someone that has a bit of an impairment in that pathway. Um what do you look at in terms of like the level of bilirubin that you start to look at as being high? Yeah, well, what, I guess what I see really typically is on most pathology lab test reports, bearing in mind that I see mm. mostly Australian numbers, although I do have international clients, but a lot of people um, like it's kind of disregarded if their levels are less than 20. So we Mm. see on the the classic pathology reports greater than 20 being like where it's flagged, but even then it's still often, like we've been saying, dismissed because of that classical benign definition which we know to be false. But what I find really interesting about that reference range is just to kind of take a sidestep for a second is I think a lot of people are really used to a reference range being a bell curve. So we collect population data of quote-unquote normal and we cut out the outliers, like the low and the high, and that's how we get a reference range which usually has a low value and a high value on your pathology report. 
But with bilirubin, if we think about, okay, so there are some people that have quite high, and these are our Gilbert's patients, and then we have another population subset that are quite low. We've actually added these two numbers together to find out what's normal, and that's how we've got less than 20. But that mm. that reference range actually includes people who have this genetic condition. So it's skewing our results to be quite high. So that's why I think how can we possibly know what a percentage is in terms of people who have this syndrome if, one, we're dismissing it as benign and, two, we're including healthy numbers with dysfunctional numbers? Does that Mm. make sense? Like I think we're just missing so many people that might be sitting quite high because my functional reference range from the literature sits between about 8 to 12 and that's micromoles per litre. So 8 to 12 is very different to greater than 20. Yeah. And, yeah, I just think more research is required for for us to have, you know, a true understanding of prevalence but I also think, as usual, our reference range, our pathology reference range needs a major rebrand overhaul. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think even just saying under 20 is like, so does that mean one's good? Oh, right? Like- my least favourite <laughs> reference range, like less than, like your cholesterol could be less than five. So if it was zero and you were that, dead, would yeah. that be good? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we probably yeah. need a bottom level for that too. So, you know, hopefully I still hold hope that our reference ranges will be updated. Mm. Um, but for the listeners, knowing that we want to see about, you know, 8 to 12 as mm. optimal, and that's for totally total bilirubin in a fasted state, by the way. Yes, yeah, yeah. of course, post-testing conditions. Mm. Um, yeah, I think over sort of 12, 13, up to 20, maybe you're like suspicious. I've seen it in more severe cases where it's like consistently sort of 35, Mm -hmm. 30, 35, and then you've obviously got quite strong suspicions, but it also doesn't mean that someone that's consistently sitting at 18, 19, 17, 20, you know, you're not going to completely rule it out in those cases either, especially if they fit the symptom picture. Yeah, especially because when we get to sort of treatment or management, you can see that... um, a lot of it is achieved through some really beautiful foundational principles. So someone who you meet who might have a 19 or a 18, you know, might be looking after themselves. So, you know, hydrated, not drinking alcohol and all the other things that will go into. So they're managing it because they're health conscious and they're hydrated and they eat a really whole food diet versus, you know, the 35s or even the higher numbers. Well, they could be just drinking a lot of booze and throwing everything out from their liver and their um, glucuronidation, right? So it's it's all relative. The the biggest takeaway so far is that, yeah, we've got to stop dismissing it and we need to look for optimal, so functionally optimal so that you know that's a reflection of a really great um, liver detoxification, specifically phase two. And, And that's key. That's key for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So should we go into some of the symptoms or is there something yeah. that you wanted to cover there? Oh, just just on, just on going back to the testing conditions because I can't help myself, but, <laughs> yeah, ma- making sure that um, we are in a fasted state. So, you know, 8 to 10 hours would be ideal. We could probably take up to 12 for something like bilirubin depending on what else you're having tested um, at that same time, of course. 
um, knowing that it's really, really different in a fed state. Um, mm. But depending on the practitioner that you work with, often you need to do a fed state bilirubin to confirm something like Gilbert. So let's say for the listener, if they're suddenly trying to find all their previous pathology um, printouts or looking in their little you know, app or their own record, if you have high bilirubin, that doesn't mean that you necessarily have Gilbert's, right? So we just need yeah. to be mindful before we start diagnosing things or panicking. Um, but I like to look at, like you said early, total and conjugated bilirubin, but also fasted and fed and then the symptom picture and everything else that we do with our clients, of course. But if you are trying to get some kind of clarity around if you do have the syndrome, um, there's more than just one total bilirubin and then obviously the conditions that I've mentioned and the additional tests are important for clarification. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I guess just lastly on that, if you do have it sitting, if you're sitting under that 20 and maybe on that lower end of the spectrum, I think it can be quite tricky to get a diagnosis. For sure. Right, because A, we're labelling it as benign and B, you're sitting under that sort of standard reference range so it's being looked at as quote-unquote normal anyway. Yeah, and maybe you don't need one because maybe you yeah. go away and apply all the beautiful strategies that your practitioner gives you and your symptoms will resolve, which is really the most important yeah. <laughs> thing, and you should see your numbers trend downwards in time as well. Yeah, definitely. Cool. All right, so four primary areas or um, mm. symptom pictures that high bilirubin or Gilbert syndrome present as. Over to you. Yeah. So I think we'll start with the digestive. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I said, they are nonspecific. So you're not necessarily going to have these symptoms and go, it's Gilbert's, right? Like it could be any number of different things mm -hmm. causing these symptoms. And that's where we really look at like the collection of things and the pathology markers as a whole. But um, one of the main things is reduced gastric emptying. So basically slow transit time. And that can really present as reduced appetite, mm -hmm. um, a sense of fullness. Um, a lot of the clients I've had will tell me like, I just can't stomach breakfast in the morning. Like mm -hmm. I just can't go there. They have low appetite, um, often um, even reflux uh, kind of symptoms, burping um, and loose stools as well is quite characteristic. So we can see that it, there could be, yeah, so many different things that could be contributing to those digestive symptoms or causing them. Um, and I think from what I've experienced anyway, these clients just really kind of get palmed off as like, you know, you've got IBS or it's, you've just got gut symptoms, like no one's really able to kind of help them in what's going on. And we can talk about um, some of the I guess, functional changes as well that can um, be caused. We might get there later about what can actually start happening in the gut as a result of that high bilirubin that's mm. being that's present there and what that can cause because I think that's quite um, interesting and, and sort of telling as to how these symptoms are occurring. Totally. And I think the IBS, I mean, I'm probably a bit of a broken record here to our regular listeners, but it's such a lazy label. Like it's not a diagnosis, mm -hmm. it's an exclusion criteria. So this client, you know, may not have Crohn's or they may not have IBD and you might have yeah. ruled out X, Y, and Z. And then you just lump them with this label that offers them no hope and no help. And, you know, it's just, it really needs to be changed in terms of how we speak about gut issues. But equally, this client might have done a whole host of screening. They might have even done some microbiome testing and they're still left with 
the symptoms that you mentioned, I see it also presenting as food sensitivities. Mm. And, you know, I talk to all my clients about this. Like I really try to avoid going down the rabbit hole of which food do I need to pull out, remove? Um, how do I find out what my intolerances are? I like to zoom out and go, okay, well, if you've got these food intolerances outside of, you know, obvious triggers like, you know, gluten or lots of cows, dairy and things like that, it's the ecosystem and the sense of relief that I see Mm. on my client's face or in the words they express to me is amazing because who wants to end up just eating chicken and broccoli, right? Nobody. So if we zoom out and think, okay, maybe there's something going on in my ecosystem and if I fix that, not only do I not have, air quotes, IBS, but I don't have to avoid food. I might even be okay with some gluten and mm. dairy. Wouldn't that be nice to, for a long-term approach, right? So yeah. that's where I think it's important to understand, um, you know, how IBS is used, that, that, that term is used, mm-hmm. the concerns that we have with that. But equally, if you've got any of these gut symptoms, how relevant is to zoom out and and work out what the root cause is so you're not just doing elimination diets for the end of time until the end of time. Yeah, it's like just asking but why, like continuing to ask that really until we come to at least um, multiple or a couple of different answers. I think IBS to me is like not really any different to telling someone you've got a hormone imbalance. It's like, well, thank you. I could really tell that from my symptoms. It doesn't really (laughs) leave me with any kind of direction or help as to what to do. Or the classic example where the doctor's like, okay, you need to lose weight. And and that's the end of the consult. And the client's like, like, but how? Obviously you and I have jobs and the natural health industry is booming because we're the ones that have the time to say, here's how you actually do it and achieve the, the rebalancing or the goal, whatever it may be. Yes. Yeah. Um, so keeping going with the symptoms in terms of mental health, um, uh, impairments in that glucuronidation pathway mean that you have um, problems with, um, you know, clearing and metabolizing neurotransmitters mm-hmm. as well. So specifically um, dopamine. So we would see anxiety, even um, symptoms like insomnia, and depending on the severity, you know, it can present um, as like acute psychotic episodes there's Mm. been situations where that's happened where it doesn't matter if you give people sleep medication they can't sleep and those sorts of things so um again there are so many different factors that can cause those symptoms but we're really looking at everything as a whole um and that's where we're not you know reducing things down to treating the symptoms we're looking at those that person that's sitting in front of us as a whole Um, The other thing that we see hormonally is um, problems with estrogen clearance. So estrogen does go through this pathway. And so those symptoms would be things like heavy menstrual bleeding, blood clots. Um, You know, I have had clients with endometriosis. Now, obviously, that's not um, an estrogen um, caused by estrogens say but it it, estrogen is like the fuel on the fire Mm -hmm. i think it's like fertilizer to weeds that's how Mm -hmm. i explain it to my clients in endo so that is definitely something that we take into consideration of course uh and pms you know increased pms so pmdd Mm -hmm. increased um anxiety towards the end of the cycle um increased fluid retention all those sorts of things um we would see as well um, just and, just to add on that, yeah. I think is really interesting with, you know, the work that you and I do with our our Dutch, our testing mm. of our hormones. Like we know that the impaired pathways 
really can increase our risk of breast cancer. So there's some really long-term consequences as well that we have to think about here. So estrogen is really important to be balanced with your progesterone and, you know, your whole reproductive symptoms. So uh, system rather, like I just find it fascinating how Billy Rubin Mm. can play into this as someone who does a lot of heavy menstrual bleeding um, work. The first thing I look at on a blood test report is where's the bilirubin? Just let me see if I mm. need to rule this in or can I rule it out? Gilbert's, yeah. I mean, yeah. So I think now we're hopefully painting the picture that benign's perhaps not the right adjective to describe this condition. I'm adding it to our list of things that need rebranding, re-branding in women's <laughs> health. I've got about six or seven. Gilbert's or benign is on the list. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then reduced alcohol tolerance as well. Yeah. So, um, what we're seeing, obviously, glucuronidation, as I said, is phase two liver detoxification. And it's not just your bilirubin or your estrogen that goes down this pathway. It's alcohol as well. And so if someone has a 10 to 65% reduction in the function of that pathway, it's going to mean that other substances, things like alcohol, which go down this pathway are not eliminated very well. And so that's why we see a reduction in alcohol tolerance. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And equally with with clients, I mean, this kind of reminds me back when MTH, uh, pardon me, when MTHFR was quite vogue or mm. with this kind of um, understanding of someone's health picture, how a lot of the pennies start to drop. Like, oh, this explains my heavy menstrual bleeding or this explains why I feel like I get really um, drunk off, you know, two to three glasses and my friends are having the, the bottle equivalent and the, the, the hangovers and the consequences that mm. many of us experience that um, we've never been able to fully explain. But when you start to understand your own liver function, um, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. I think it can be, um, I guess, like liberating for people to start <laughs> getting answers. I'm sure everyone's going to go away and start checking their bilirubin levels for sure. after this. can't wait. Yeah, I yeah. did. I did. I went back through like my entire history. I was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting to see that. Um, and then we've got things as well when we're talking about the enzymes. So that's that. Um, it is the UGT one A one enzyme. We've got specific things that can um, actually inhibit the function of that enzyme further. And then we've also got, as we've talked about, like alcohol and estrogen. So things that are going, wanting to go through that pathway that essentially put additional traffic or load on it. So um, slow it down. Well, not necessarily slow it down further, but essentially putting more pressure on that system to work properly when it's already under functioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is really interesting as well. So things that can actually inhibit the enzyme. So, um, make it less functional. Um, Testosterone is one, which I think is really interesting and then relevant, of course, like we've been talking about PCOS quite a lot, relevant to our PCOS clients. Um, It also means that men are more likely to experience issues with this as well or can be more likely. I think that's really interesting. And just as a sort of uh, tidbit, I think um, the research shows that uh, males going through puberty is often a time for detection because they get that larger surge in testosterone that's impacting the enzymes function further if they've already got something like Gilbert's and then therefore driving that bilirubin up higher um, and, of course, causing more of those symptoms as well. That's fascinating. Um, it I is, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, and then fasting. Fasting, so extended periods of fasting is something that can inhibit that further. And part of it also is that 
um, in some people that can slow um, transit time through the bowels further and that can then also lead to more reabsorption of bilirubin in the bowels as well. So that's interesting and, again, I think just goes to show like there isn't that one size fits all. These things can be super beneficial and then perhaps not so much in others. Mm. Um, And then ibuprofen as well is another enzyme inhibitor, which is really, really interesting. Um, And when we look at things um, or substances which are going through that glucuronidation pathway, which can give it more work, we've talked about alcohol estrogen when we think about estrogen i think what we don't often think about is the oral contraceptive pill and hrt sure so if you have gilberts taking something like the oral contraceptive pill or hrt is going to put additional load on that glucuronidation pathway and potentially lead to worse symptoms for you again we're not assessing this if we're calling it benign yeah, God, there's just so many things. And with the paracetamol, like it reminds me of what we were discussing about the alcohol, like the packet recommendations, mm. which I imagine not a lot of our listeners are following because they don't need um, pain relief per se, but just for when you do, often the packet recommendations are quite excessive for someone mm. with bilirubin. So that's what bothers me as well. It's like we're putting this one-size-fits-all recommendation on our pharmaceuticals, which could be dangerous to someone with this this condition yeah of course of course and you might have worked that out yourself the hard way and, and mm. sorry if you had to or similar with the alcohol you now have a have a reason um to understand yeah why you need to modify your dosage quite significantly mm. why yeah. you might be more sensitive to the pill i mean how many women do you meet that say to you oh I tried the pill, but it made me feel crazy or yeah. it really didn't feel good or I just knew it wasn't right and of course, multifactorial, but how interesting this could have been coming into that, you know, absolutely. that process. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think going back to if we know it's between 5 and 10% of the population, hopefully by now we've painted the picture that possibly it, it's quite a bit higher than that. Um, and I often think about like the connections between these things. Like if someone does have an issue clearing estrogen and if even if they're not on, you know, HRT or the pill or anything like that, it's just their own estrogen that they have mm. trouble clearing they're probably going to be, yeah, yeah, more susceptible to having more period pain as well. What are they going to lean on if they're not looking for like more natural strategies like ibuprofen and paracetamol? Like true. the irony, right? Like how Very those true. things all play into each other. Or you have a really bad hangover, maybe you take Panadol or something like that. Like hopefully not a lot of people listening to this are doing that. But it's we see those connections, right, where if you don't know about something like this or you've you do know and you've been told it's benign and not really educated on how it's it's affecting your physiology. Um, yeah, I think it's it's quite interesting. The penny is dropping, I am mm. sure. What I loved when I first started looking at Gilbert's, I must admit what I loved the most, like zooming out, mm. was um, what, I, what I started to alluded, what I started to allude to earlier in that if we do have a really great, focus on health and hydration and the microbiome and hormonal balancing that we can often be managing something like high bilirubin, whether or not it's Gilbert. So do you want to move into some Mm. really foundational recommendations, which hopefully for the listener will be like, oh, great, I've already got that covered. So it can start to feel like it's much more easy to manage if you've got the symptoms that we've discussed 
And then certainly if you do dive into your path or go and have mm. your bilirubin tested and you find out that you're sitting um, higher than normal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think before we start looking at sort of um, how we can like treat the high bilirubin per se or reduce it, coming back to what we've just talked about, things that inhibit the enzyme um, function further and things that put additional um, load and pressure on this glucuronidation pathway is where we need to start because I think often we can be quick to jump in and say, let's remedy it and fix it and what have you and add things in. But I also like to start with like, is there anything that we're doing from a diet and lifestyle perspective that we can actually take out to remove some of the burden on that system? Um, so certainly like we talked about enzyme inhibitors being like testosterone. So if you're someone that has PCOS and Gilbert's, we're obviously going to want to address that for sure because it's going to improve that enzyme function. Maybe doing extended fasting isn't appropriate for someone with Gilbert's as well. So that's a way that we can look at reducing the burden on that system. Pain medication A, like why are you taking it in the first place? Hopefully let's correct and address that. Really looking at um, alcohol consumption. Like I know not everyone wants to hear that they need to stop drinking. I always have clients say, like, how much can I drink Mm -hmm. if they are drinking? And we're having that conversation, like, is there an amount that's okay And I find that often like a really hard question to answer. And I, you know, nearly never drink and I've obviously been pregnant and breastfeeding now for a little while. So that often, you know, rules that out of the equation quite easily. But I do think we have that as such a crutch in our culture, particularly, you know, we've just been through the festive period. My Most of my appointments in January are kind of like I've fallen off the bandwagon and I'm trying to get back on. Um, and so that, you know, inevitably leads to a bit of a conversation around alcohol at some stage, but yeah, we need to be acknowledging that that is an impact. Um, and then estrogen as well, like, you know, maybe HRT, OCP, hopefully you're looking at other alternatives other than that, because they are things that are going to, um, impact that pathway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then looking at our different sort of um, treatment strategies, food changes that we can be looking at doing, I think um, we can look at strategies which help to improve transit time in the gut. So that's going to result in basically less reabsorption of bilirubin um, in the colon. So we've talked about fasting, other things like fiber, really making sure that you've got enough fiber. I know that's so basic, making sure you're drinking enough water. Um other things that we can look at doing more specifically around that, you know, there are some different um, pre and probiotics as well, which can be beneficial. Um, one of the things that we talked about with Gilbert's is that the high bilirubin in the gut can impact the tight junctions. So essentially contributing towards intestinal permeability rearranging those gap junctions. So we can look at things like lactobacillus plantarum. There is um, specific things around that for Gilberts and then more, you know, non-specifically things that we might look at would be like, you know, your your glutamines, the prealm, aloe, um, your broths, um, saccharomyces boulardii and all those sorts of things as well. Um, zinc salts um, have been found to help remove that unconjugated bilirubin from the gut. So I think that's a great thing that we can lean on. Um, anything else that you would add within that, Steph? Well, even just kind of going maybe 
again, super basic, but yeah. like if we go into the fiber, well, you know, are you getting that 30 grams of fiber a day? Mm. What volume or how many cups of our cruciferous vegetables? So the really yeah. high sulforaphane rich diet, if possible. So cauliflower, broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts, aiming for yep. one to two cups a day. Um, mm. And then mm. I think, you know, everything about bile so for me Mm. it's about making sure that bile is moving so that's of course like you know the the fiber but it is looking at some key bitter foods that can Mm. be quite helpful so whether that's dandelion tea you can even be having um granny smith apples with the skin on that have that bitterness rocket with your eggs even you know herbal teas that are designed for the liver, mm. whether it be like a liver detox or a milk So I mean, I I love that. I mean, these are the classic recommendations that we give our women with heavy menstrual bleeding or high yeah. estrogen from a Dutch because they are what's going to be working on phase two, which we know, of course, mm. is downregulated in Gilbert. So I think for a lot of the women, they find that quite helpful to know that there's so many of those within the food category, Mm. so many specifics that help and how that then flows on to the transit time and avoiding the retoxification of not only the bilirubin but the estrogen, which is obviously when it's reabsorbed, that it can become far more potent and cause a lot more of the blood loss, clots, pain, et cetera. So um, even lemon water, goodness, mm. like our 101 can be really helpful. So making sure you're getting up, you know, having some nice filtered water with some fresh lemon throughout the day, of course, can be so mm. powerful. So, yeah, a lot of beautiful strategies that most of, you know, our listeners I'm sure have heard of are doing and mm. then just adding on, you know, what you're already not including, of course, from there. Yeah, definitely. I think it's looking at certainly that phase two support um, and maybe looking at some of those other pathways as well, like you mm. mentioned, you know, looking at your methylation and your sulfation, which you would be doing if you were working with a practitioner, hopefully. And then again, looking at how it's being excreted through the gut. So yeah, the bile stimulation. And then depending on someone's symptom picture, I do think it can be helpful to do a stool test as well to have a look at what else might be going on there and and maybe introduce some more sort of um, like targeted treatment strategies as well. Um, Because I think also with, sorry, go on. Mm. No, I was just going to say again, again, like broadly, I think about hormone and um, detoxification in general as like you've got a, a drain sort of like leading out of your body, right? And you've got your liver being that first step and you've got two sort of compartments within that and then you've got your gut being that last phase. And I think it's important that we work on both of those areas at once instead of, you know, like just working on the liver and not really addressing what's going on in the gut because otherwise, like we've mentioned, you can end up with great liver function but then still a bit of an impairment in that gut and that's where you would get still that reabsorption of bilirubin and therefore not a great resolution in symptoms. Yeah, and that's why I think zooming out and looking Mm. at the microbiome can be helpful because, you know, butyrate is our key Mm. short-chain fatty acid. I mean, that that circles back to what we were talking about uh, with fibre but also then the diversity in the types of fibre, so making sure we're getting our 
inulins and our, you know, our fructose oligosaccharides and our resistant starches. So like not just going, oh, classic prebiotics, which I think a lot of Mm. people do when they're talking about diversifying a microbiome, but really getting into the specifics of that so that your diet covers most, if not all of your bases. I think everyone can agree that microbiome diversity is pretty key um, and that that can actually be achieved relatively easily as long as Mm. you're conscious of the different foods that you're eating and and, and eating seasonally, of course, where appropriate. So lots. Yeah. And all quite foundational, Mm. I think. (laughs) Yeah. It's beautiful. It's just a fascinating topic. I think, you know, it's exciting to think where the research might go, but just for, you know, our listeners today to think about even within what we've discussed, all these strategies for me are, are key for many conditions. Mm. Like I said, it could be um, period issues outside of high bilirubin and it can mm. be so helpful to just look at, all right, well, how am I clearing my hormones? Am yeah. I reabsorbing them? What's happening in my microbiome and how this relates to my hormonal balance? Like, mm. of course, there are more supplements we could look at, especially if, if someone was doing a Dutch or specific mm. test, hormonal testing. Um, but not before we address all those foundations, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of that we would be doing anyway mm. with or without a, a label. Yeah, you'd hope so, all the foundations. And then, of course, the other element that comes to mind from separate to that is is circling back to what we were saying before about um, phase two taking out yeah, up to 70% of mm. our exogenous toxins. Mm. That's, of course, environmental considerations like the water that you drink, the air that you breathe, the plastics that you avoid. And, and you know, I can't, I, skin. I know the amount of times I go for a walk and I walk past this beautiful looking lady and all I can smell is, I know. sorry to say <gasps> it, but like, actually I won't say that, but like just toxic perfume. Yeah. I'm quite sensitive to that smell. But mm. I just find it so sad that no one's told her that it's probably more important to <laughs> um, move away from the xenoestrogens or those toxins that can really interfere with your hormones, especially when you're placing it around like your bosoms. Like I know, perfume. or they've sprayed on their Thyroid, neck. yeah. I always think about that. I, Deodorants, I, I often think about how yes, close they are to the bosoms. Yeah. All of that as well. Yeah, we actually, we live in an apartment currently and one of my one of the things I'm looking forward to so much about moving into a house is not getting in the lift because Oof. people it smells literally like they've gone into the lift and sprayed themselves in there. Yeah. <laughs> and I think when you stop using that kind of stuff, you do get a lot more sensitive to the smell of it. Because yeah, I can been remember many years since I've bought a in my early a, a 20s, brand name. myself. <laughs> Same, yeah. and it was always about the label and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oh my goodness, horrifying. Now I just put a bit of essential oils if I can even remember. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. All righty. Well, I'd love to give you the space to add anything else that you wanted to to today's conversation. If not, as always, just um, yeah, anything else that's going on for you over at Celine Douglas Nutrition and where we can learn more from you. Thank you. Um, I think. Mainly not to freak out if you do have bilirubin and you're going back through your blood tests and going, oh, my gosh, what is this syndrome that I have? Um, Hopefully when we've gotten to talking about the strategies, it's become quite clear that it is obviously something that can be managed really, really well. I think it's just um, about getting the right support if you're not able to 
not feeling like you're managing it properly on your own because it is quite foundational and I think something that you can really nicely integrate into your life. It's not something that has to be this big ordeal for you. Um, But yeah, identifying it hopefully as well that we've clearly indicated that, you know, whilst it is manageable and I think something that isn't a huge um, a huge issue provided that you're doing the right things. Like it's not benign. And I really don't think that we can be saying that someone who's got a 65% down regulation in one of their key detoxification pathways, that it's benign and not going to have any issues for them. Like I just, yeah, I can't. But, you know, hopefully we've <laughs> sort of um, clarified that today. And, yeah, if you want to come and find me, my Instagram handle is Douglas underscore nutrition or website is just selendouglas.com. Um, and, yeah, feel free to come over and have a chat there. I'm always happy to hear from you. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. I've loved diving into this topic with you. And, um, yeah, check out the show notes for everything that we discussed today, including links to where you can um, follow Selene. So thanks so much for tuning in today, everyone. Thanks so much, Steph. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.